Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the developments in the Indo-Pacific region. This is brought to you by the Asia Group, and I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Thanks, Rich. And I want to first thank you also, the listeners, for downloading this show. And I hope you'll enjoy listening to it as much as we've enjoyed putting this all together. This is the first episode of Tea Leaves, the inaugural episode, and we'll be using this first show to do our favorite thing, which is to talk a little bit about ourselves <laughs> and also explore what we do at the Asia Group and why we started this podcast. So, Kurt, in the spirit of age before beauty, uh, let's start with you. Uh, okay. And before we get into some of your most recent experiences and your book and your time as Assistant Secretary, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about uh, who you are, your upbringing, your, your studies, your public service, and uh, how you got interested in, in Asia. That's great, Rich. Thanks. Well, uh, I grew up about as far away from Washington, D.C., uh, as you can imagine. I grew up in the central San Joaquin Valley uh, in California, uh, in Fresno, California. When I tell people I'm from California, they say, oh, great, uh, Los Angeles or San Francisco. And I say, no, the central San Joaquin Valley, Fresno. And there's always a little bit of, oh, a little, <laughs> little disappointment there. Um, so where I grew up, uh, it was a small community and the dominant group there were Armenians, uh, and, uh, people of Hispanic, uh, uh, lineage. And I had the opportunity, uh, as a son of a college professor to have a little bit of an international perspective. And I grew up playing the violin and, uh, uh, also uh, interested in the world. And so when I was uh, finishing uh, college, I got the opportunity. I was at U University of California, San Diego, uh, to study in the former Soviet Union, uh, to study in Soviet Armenia. And that experience of uh, studying and living abroad really changed my perspective. I was able to get a scholarship to Oxford and uh, you know, subsequently joined the Navy. So I, I got to do a lot of things um, from there. But I, I sometimes wonder growing up, like, what was it that really got me? Was there anything that got me interested in Asia? And I do remember one thing. My family was all about baseball. So my, my brother and I, we all played, you know, baseball during uh, really hot uh, uh, summers in the San Joaquin Valley. And I remember we used to play on a field where I could look across the way and the the last uh, sort of remnants of the Japanese League, um, there was a league that had been established by Japanese uh, immigrants uh, to California, and they would play in these tournaments. And I, I saw the women with their colorful parasols mm. and elaborate, you know, kind of finery, and you could see it across the way, and you always wondered, who are those guys? Right. And I remember... When I was in the Navy and my actual first trip uh, to Japan, I was based on a ship in Yokosuka, uh, which is just below Tokyo. I remember seeing, again, women with those parasols on a, uh, a hot summer day in July in Tokyo and thinking to myself, that was just like what I experienced as a kid. There were a lot of dots that got connected there. Yeah. I want to hear um, a little bit more about 
Kurt Campbell, the musician, however, because we don't get to hear a lot <laughs> well, of this. Yeah, <laughs> the world has been denied yeah. a great violinist. No. So, so violin, piano. Yeah. What was what violin? Was your, I studied yeah. violin and uh, you know had this opportunity to study in a conservatory in um, Armenia, which had produced some fantastic musicians. Um, but I remembered, uh, you know, there were about eighteen or nineteen violinists that were also studying in the same time. Uh, some of them f were from the former Soviet Union, some from around the then socialist world, like the mm -hmm. finest violinists right. from Laos and stuff like that. Um, but I, I remember like ranking them. And I remember on the best day, I was like 18 out of 19. <laughs> and I realized there's no future in this. I, I could basically, you know, kind of uh, tutor kids in a garage, just like my violin teacher did. But it wasn't going to be something that... Uh, I wasn't going to be able to make a mark on the it's world. Amazing. Was do you still do play? Much. Yeah, a little bit. But I mean, I mostly I try to make sure that my daughters uh, get to soccer uh, <laughs> and their own piano lessons on time. Right. Um, but I still love music and still follow it. And I still keep in touch with some of the people that I, I studied with there. That's great. And you obviously made this connection to international affairs. You had Oxford, you had the yeah. Navy. Um, but tell us a little bit about the deep dive then into into yeah. Asia. You had a lot of mentors over the years. You had Graham Allison. You yeah. had uh, folks at the Defense Department and State Department. But just tell us a little bit about yeah, your thanks. evolution. So, uh, you know, I was I served as a professor at the at, at the Kennedy School at Harvard, and uh, was fortunate to get a White House fellowship. Was served at the Treasury Department and the White House, and I was just about to finish up and go back to Harvard. And I got a call from Joe Nye, who was then at the Pentagon working under Bill Perry. And he asked me if I wanted to go over and work on Asia. And I remember it was a complete surprise and quite a departure from my previous experience. I was I was one of those people who had trained basically in the Cold War competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. I spoke Russian. I was really focused more on the, the central theater uh, uh, in Europe and other places in Africa, ironically. And so it was only later that I became, you know, more focused in other parts of the world. I always remember there's this, there's this quote that's attributed to Mark Twain. And he said, you know, the two most important days are the, for you are the day you're born and the day you realize why you were born. Hmm. And for me, when I was um, first started working on Asia, I had grown sort of tired and probably a little bored of some of the issues that I'd worked on before. And it was in 1995 that I started for the first time really working on Asia. And literally, I don't think there has been a minute since that I haven't been focused, obsessed, engaged, and just tremendously interested in every detail of Asia, from its culture, its cuisine, its competitions, its aspirations. And that's actually one of the reasons why we wanted to do uh, Tea Leaves was right. to open up this vivid, uh, fantastic world to others. Uh, so it's a good chance now I'm going to turn the tables on you. So I've given you my life growing up in Fresno, California. The first time I met Rich Verma, I remember he was talking about uh, playing ice hockey over the weekend. And I'm thinking, what's a fine Indian American uh, young man doing playing 
ice hockey. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story, at least for me. But I'll, I'll share it, I'll share it with you. So I'll I won't go back too far. But um, you know, my parents came over to the U.S. in the early '60s, and my dad tells this great immigrant story about showing up in New York City with fourteen dollars and a and a bus ticket. And depending on which day you talk to my dad, some days he had $22, some days he had $14. But the, the thesis of the story was he didn't have a lot and uh, started from, from scratch. And they were leaving an India at that time that was still very much a, a, of its infancy. Uh, that My parents were both products of the partition. My mother came over from what is today Pakistan, settled in, um, in Punjab in India. My dad was already there. And somehow, you know, they've got this incredible story of just defying odds at every turn. They became educated at a time when very few people uh, were going off to higher education. My mom became a school teacher and the head of a girls' school. My dad became a, a teacher and the head of a boys' school, and that's how they met. Now, one of the great experiences for me over the last couple of years uh, when I was in New Delhi was that I got to go back and see the school where my mom taught. I saw where my grandmother taught. I went to the uh, school where my dad went to college and the village where he grew up and and really uh, kind of saw our our roots, um, which was incredible. And the number of people that came out and said, I knew your mother or grandmother, and they kept me on the straight and narrow was just, that was really uh, pretty emotional and pretty fulfilling experience. But my dad, we ended up settling in Western Pennsylvania where he got his first uh, teaching assignment in the University of Pittsburgh uh, system in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. We were the first Indian family there in 1971, uh, which was pretty uh, amazing. That's where I learned to play hockey and baseball and football. and and. Um, but at the same time, we had this really interesting uh, life rooted in a kind of Indian culture and values. And I always tell this story about my mom would wait outside in the blowing and drifting snow in her sari, waiting for the bus to pick her up to take her to to work where she was a special needs teacher. So, Rich, did you, when you were growing up there in Johnson, did you have... Um, uh, did you have contact with other diaspora from the Indian community? Did you feel like that you were part of American culture? How did you feel at that point? Yeah, I mean, we definitely grew up, I think, like, honestly, like millions of other immigrants before us with a foot in both places and um, really proud of the roots, but also excited about the um, American future that that we had. I... Also, maybe to the dismay of my parents, wanted to do things a bit differently. I wanted to serve in the military. I wanted to serve in public service. Uh, of course, you know, at that point, all they wanted was for me to go to medical school or, or to be an engineer or a scientist. And uh, in fact, one of my friends said, uh, you know, now that you've been nominated to be ambassador to India, maybe your parents will stop trying to convince you to go to medical school. <laughs> so, but, you know, it was about, it was about economic security. It was about um, just keeping your head down. But I, I had this um, kind of real interest uh, in public service and I was, I was, you know, I was glad they supported me in that in the end. Can I, one of the things I've always wondered about is, so you and I are both uh, of a certain age. I'm a little bit more of a certain age than you are, but <laughs> But both of us uh, joined the military. Right. And it's a little bit of an unusual career track. I think I know why I did. My father 
uh, served in the Pacific during the Second World War is a huge part of made what made him who he was. And I also wanted to work on national security. Um, uh, and I thought, what better way to make a commitment to the nation? But, but a lot of people always questioned me. And one of the things that immediately attracted me to you was that you also chose to serve. Yeah. You know, I, as a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. And I, I looked at all the different pathways to becoming an astronaut. And uh, one of the best ways to do that was to be a fighter pilot and go into the astronaut training program. And I, I can still show you the letters I wrote to the head of NASA and to the head of uh, the Air Force when I was probably nine years old. Um, and then a few things happened. I discovered I wasn't that great at math and science, and at least in college. And um, I started working in Washington at a fairly early age. I was probably 17 when I had my first internship on Capitol Hill. And so I became really interested in this uh, national security policy, Washington interface. And, you know, it was still, I still desperately wanted to serve uh, in the military as well. And so I ended up serving as a judge advocate in the Air Force. And oh, by the way, you know, it's a great way to pay for school. So I had an Air Force ROTC scholarship. I tell people all the time that without the military, I would have achieved nothing. I would have, who knows whether I would have, you know, made it outside of Pennsylvania, whether I would have gone on to higher education. But, uh, and it's, I don't think it's a cliche, but I learned more about life and about camaraderie, about teamwork uh, in the military than than anywhere else. So, Rich, you've done so many incredible things. You know, you've worked for uh, the head of the Senate. You were the uh, person in the inner uh, uh, cabinet, if you will, of both President Obama and Secretary Clinton. You are deeply respected um, uh, across the political aisle. And you had this great, you know, kind of service in government, and then you were off, you know, working, and you had this opportunity um, when President Obama called and said, do, do you want to be ambassador to India? And I remember I talked to you then, and at the time you were sort of weighing your options, but when I've seen you both when you were there and when you came home, you said it was one of the great experiences of your life. You know, tell uh, our listeners a little bit what it was like to serve as uh, not only an American ambassador in New Delhi, but the first Indian American ambassador to India. Yeah, no, and I part of the reason I brought up the story of my parents was just to show how unlikely this was that this kid who came over to the U.S. not that long ago uh, was able to go back and serve as the American ambassador. Uh, and I remember Susan Rice calling me and, and saying, the president wants you to go to India. And I said, uh, to visit? For our listeners, you yeah. have to let them know what who Susan Rice is. Former National case. Security Advisor yeah. Thank to, you. The, to the president. Sorry, Susan, we want yeah. to make sure you know that we, we know your title. <laughs> and I, say, I said, to do what? And she said, to, to be the ambassador, you, you knucklehead. And I, I said, okay, that's something else. And, and she asked me, she said, how do you think it'll be? to be Indian American uh, in New Delhi. And I said, look, uh, this is the second largest U.S. embassy in the world. So you might want to send someone who know, can do the basics of the job, the management job, the foreign policy aspects. Uh, and I said, beyond that, uh, if you think you, know, you meet those thresholds, I think having a connection to the folks, I think you have to go out and prove yourself. But I think, look, pretty good understanding of what people are confronting in India. We, our family lived through a lot of those issues. 
but you'll have to go out and demonstrate that you can do the job. And, and I think once you show that, you know, we were really warmly welcomed across the country from the prime minister to the every village we went to. And I got to go to all 29 states, which was, um, you know, really incredible diversity of India, but it was amazing professionally and personally. And the fact that the you know, President Obama and, and um, Prime Minister Modi met nine times during my tenure. We just, we rode in that wave of, uh, of goodwill that the two of them had. And, and so we had, a, we had a terrific experience. But Kurt, I've, I've got to now flip the tables uh, back to you because part of the reason you've become so uh, successful is you identified a, uh, a trend or a region that was um, maybe underlooked or, or under-resourced uh, from a U.S. government point of view, and that's, that's Asia. And you were way out in front of telling people that tw 21st century was going to be the Asian century. I just want to maybe 17 years into it or 18 years into it, or ha have you been reaffirmed? Is this the Asian century that you thought it would be? Hmm. Are the trend lines uh, and the excitement and the opportunity and threats uh, where you thought they would be? Yeah, thanks. Um, look, I, uh, I've long believed that the history of the 21st century, as you've indicated, will play out in the Asia-Pacific region. I don't think there's any question about it. I think the big question is how much uh, of that history will involve the United States in Asia. And I think we have been strategically preoccupied in other parts of the world um, for good reasons, but um, some of those uh, places really tax our resources, our attention, and our uh, other capabilities. And you can't do everything in the world. You have to have a hierarchy. And I've often argued that across the board, we need to do more in the Asia Pacific region. I think um, we've had fits and starts of trying to do more. Uh, I think there probably now are more concerns about the United States, our staying power and our stability than we've had in some time, probably not since Vietnam, are there more questions about the United States, um, can you can you say a little bit about that? Because yeah. in your book, uh, the pivot, uh, give you a little plug for your book, which is a terrific uh, read. You talk about perhaps at least a couple things that may be holding us back. You talk about the foreign policy consensus not being so unified as it used to be on the Amer America's role in the world. And you talk about divisions here at home politically, which we've obviously seen play out over the last uh, few years. But make make the case to either a political person or to maybe people where I grew up in Johnstown. Why should they care? Why does why does Asia matter to them? And in fact, the counter argument has in fact been this has been a part of the world that has made your life worse, not better. What's mm -hmm. what's the counter argument? Yeah. Well, look, I think my argument would be that Asia is coming. It's arrived. And uh, we can't shut ourselves off to the challenge. 
um, that Asia provides. And most of that challenge increasingly is a commercial and economic challenge. Tremendous innovation, tremendous abilities to manufacture, but increasingly also uh, work in high tech and in other uh, uh, dimensions that are going to define commerce in the 21st century. Um, I think the United States has demonstrated time and time again that we have the capabilities to be successful and to compete in Asia, whether it's uh, in cloud computing or aerospace or um, financial uh, developments. Uh, those are areas where the United States has demonstrated a capability to, um, uh, to innovate and to compete. I, I think traditional manufacturing jobs of the kind that were important in parts of Pennsylvania where you grew up and frankly, some of the agricultural stuff where I um, experienced as a, as a child, um, both of those have had uh, clear uh, collisions with Asia. For, for you all, you probably saw a lot of uh, manufacturing jobs uh, leave disappear, the state, right? disappear. Yeah. A lot of that is because of mechanization and um, just innovations more generally. Uh, in California, much of our agricultural uh, 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 produce is snapped up immediately by Asian consumers who are interested in our fruits and our nuts and the like. But at the same time, I, I think we need to understand that that we can't hide from this. We have to compete, and it's going to be more challenging. It requires every bit of American cunning and ingenuity. But our ticket to the big game in Asia is not simply our military capabilities. It is our ability to have an open, optimistic approach to trade and engagements, and that is a proposition that is in question that is increasingly challenged by uh, Americans across the political aisle. Yeah, but your view is, and you've been to every country in the Indo-Pacific multiple times. Uh, you've seen what Americans are doing. You've seen what American exports, uh, the markets that are open. Your your view is we actually can compete and do quite well there. And if we shut ourselves out, that, that's at our own peril. First point. And your second point about this not being all about military, uh, say a little bit more about this, because yeah. when, when you and others in the Obama administration rolled out the, the pivot or the rebalance, um, People thought this was a military play to contain China, but that's not what uh, you're talking about here today. No, I, I think for us to be successful in Asia, we've got to embrace the region as a whole and understand that, for instance, our entire economic relationship between the United States and Southeast Asia is comparable to our economic and commercial relationship between the United States and Europe. So these are sizable markets with huge uh, impact on our ability to um, uh, prosper. Ultimately, I think we're entering a period where the biggest question is about is about U.S.-China relations. I think we we made some big bets about about China's integration and its modern modernization. And it's moderation. And I think some of those bets, frankly, are being called into question now. So one of the reasons why 
I'm so interested in the next phase of thinking about Asia is I think the big questions about China are on the table. What that means for me is not only do we have to figure out our relationship with China, but we have to work all the, that much harder on building a stronger relationship with India, which you were in the forefront on, Japan, South Korea, other countries in the region as a whole. But overall, I think just undeniably the, the, the weight of history um, uh, rests in Asia and the, we, we can't avoid it can't avoid the region and we have to get in and compete. And we've always done so uh, uh, more effectively than many people realize. I will say that this, this whole question about whether it's pivot or rebalance, uh, you know, I, I had, I took such, <laughs> a, such a lot of grief for this term pivot that Secretary Clinton used. I remember one of the things that both of us share, we both have uh, young families uh, Rich has three kids. I have three kids. I, about you know three or four years ago, I was at at dance school, ballerina school, and my my then five year old daughter was dancing in her little pink thing, and I was sitting on the side, and and her teacher kept saying, "Now pivot, girls, pivot," and I'm and I'm like, "Don't you mean rebalance?" <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah the, well, the term means um, means a lot um, to people, and they took it seriously, and and. Um, what what is the right phrase pivot the concern not only in yeah. ballet but in in geopolitics was that we were leaving a region behind yeah so the the idea and i i, I accept those critiques that one of the things i tried to write out write in my book was you know how to roll out a uh, a new strategy and how not to do it and i'm afraid that when we rolled out the pivot concept we made a lot of fatal errors um uh, that could have been done much more effectively. But I will also tell you, government is about putting out ideas, most of which are immediately ignored. On very rare occasions, you do something and it's much bigger than you anticipated, and you immediately then deal with the unintended consequences. That was my experience with the pivot. And I think the biggest concern was that somehow we were going to leave Europe. And the term pivot was meant in our um, kind of uh, uh, conception, like a basketball player, you would have a, you'd be able to move back and forth seamlessly right. uh, between arenas and kind of have a pivot foot. But I'm afraid it was either caricatured or viewed as somehow leaving more Europe than anything else. And the truth is that to me was fundamentally mistaken and wrong. Everything the United States has ever done of significance on the global stage, we've done with Europe. And so if anything, I wanted to see the United States and Europe uh, cooperating more on the Indo-Pacific, if anything, not less. Yeah. And so the idea that this was somehow about leaving Europe, uh, I, I actually felt terrible about. And I tried to argue, look, we're launching these dialogues with Europe about how to work more on areas of mutual consequence in the Indo-Pacific. But I think um, overall, I learned a big lesson about how to conceptualize and launch yeah. a big public well, look, agenda. You, you, um, you drove some real change, and sometimes that's painful. I will tell you, from the Indian perspective, uh, this refocus on the Indo-Pacific was really welcome. And when I look out, you know, just 12 years from now to 2030, the role that India is going to play in the world, we, I think we've done exactly the right rebalance or pivot and our relationship with India couldn't be more important. 
uh, you know, they will lead the world in almost every category that that we care about. They will be the world's largest democracy as they are now. They'll have the most people. They'll have the largest middle class. They will have the most college graduates. Some people say they'll have the most patent holders. They will have the third largest military, third largest economy. Uh, so when you look at the kind of where the centers of activity are and where we are naturally aligned in terms of partnership, that's why this kind of U.S.-India relationship is so exciting. And I think can and should be um, kind of one of the foundational elements of U.S. foreign policy in the next 10 to 20 years, whether you call this a pivot or rebalance or, or not. Rich, that's all well and good. But what really, <laughs> what this all means to me is an ability to get a good table at a restaurant. And I just want to tell you <laughs> that uh, I was with my family and we were uh, going to dinner about a week ago in Bethesda at Tenduri Nights. And it was really booked and full up. And I whispered to the maitre d' that my partner is Rich Verma. Oh, no. And the next thing you know, I got a table. So oh, okay. it may be an important region, yeah. but, it, but it also enables you to get a, a good table at a restaurant. So we're appreciative. That's funny. Before so, we close out here, I want to ask you about your um, your business. And, and yeah. uh, you know, I guess less than five years ago, you decided um, to start the Asia Group. Um and it's uh, it's been quite a ride since then. Well, uh, one of the things we have to remember, Rich, it's no longer your business; it's our business. <laughs> I know you're you have a, a, a sort of a repose occasionally, but the truth is that now that you're the vice chairman, it can't be you guys anymore. We're in it's this us. together. So, look, one of the things that I was struck me when I was in government was how many businesses, American businesses came into the State Department with really hard questions or challenges about market entry or unfair competition or a new product that people really wanted to see if it would work in Asia. I, I So I was really struck and animated by, look, if this is really going to be what the 21st century is about, then not only does the U.S. government have to step up its game in Asia, but American businesses have to step up their game. And I thought a number of those businesses could really use some help. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. I remember I, I worked with a firm in the Midwest that wanted to market and uh, do some really exciting things in Indonesia. And the head of the company um, was meeting with me in my office and with his team and asked his team to leave. And then he just wanted to talk with me personally. And he, he then asked a series of questions. Would he be safe? Could he bring a gun on the trip? Will, you know, the, mm -hmm. will, will he be, you know, um, apprehended? And I, I remember thinking to myself, here's this man who's built this tremendous company, but still doesn't really know very much about the, the place that he wants to, uh, you know, make a, a, a foothold for his next market. And so I thought this would be a great thing to do to help American businesses. And that's what we've done. We built a, um, we built a company that serves a whole host of frontline American firms to actually be effective in the Asia Pacific region. And we've built a first class team to service those companies as part of their efforts to be effective to bring American products and services to Asia. We've also built a capital advisory to help firms that are looking to acquire 
for other uh, uh, economic entities to advance their interests. And Rich, one of the things that you and I have worked on uh, together is our foundation. Right. Uh, we have a great young group of folks at our uh, organization that are committed to um, uh, uh, developing uh, the next generation, not only in the United States, but in Asia. We've built schools in Myanmar. We've done um, uh, women's development in India. Uh, we've We've looked at uh, disaster relief and helped uh, those that are struggling in the Philippines and elsewhere. And we've also assisted young women uh, in the United States uh, from Asian backgrounds become more interested in politics uh, through uh, programs here in Washington, D.C. So it's been a great run. Uh, we were thrilled to be able to bring uh, Ambassador Verma into the fold uh, <laughs> earlier. And so he has gone uh, from uh, you guys to uh, us guys. That's now. exciting. I, I'm, I'm really excited about the future together. And uh, we should say a word about this podcast, why we're doing it and, and what we hope to uh, let people know about trends and uh, bring people up to speed and just have a conversation about about Asia. But what's what's your hope for this uh, podcast? Well, look, uh, incredibly grateful uh, for uh, the team here at the Asia Group who helped me understand how we could reach a new group of people who are excited and thinking about Asia uh, through a podcast um, uh, effort. And I think our goal is to identify cutting edge figures from politics, from culture, from music, um, from diplomacy, and from strategy. And every uh, uh, couple of weeks, introduce uh, to uh, interested listeners uh, another segment of Asian, uh, Indo-Pacific, or Asia-Pacific life. That's our hope, and uh, that's what we're going to do. And I can't imagine doing it with a better guy it's great. than you, Rich. That's Thank great. You. Thanks, Kurt. Looking forward to the next episode. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.